Welcome to the podcast 500 Years of Urban Farming in Denmark, Past Experiences and Future Prospects. The podcast is based upon the book bearing the same title, a book written by Dr. Paul Rue-Kledal, who is educated as an agricultural economist. He has more than 20 years of professional experience as a researcher and governmental advisor within urban farming, recirculating aquaculture and aquaponics. But then I start to realize that urban farming was not something very new. And I could see when I start digging into the history of my own country that I could actually go 500 years back and see that urban farming has been part of Denmark and Danish history. King Christian II of Denmark, he wanted to strengthen the Danish capital of Copenhagen, making it a commercial seaport, and so take advantage of this growing trade and growing income. So this is where we actually formally see that urban farming is, is kind of recognized and has legal rights and has property rights towards this land. In this episode, we'll take you through the history of urban farming in Denmark. You will hear how urban farming started in the 16th century and has ties to the French Huguenots. How Dutch farmers came to Denmark and inspired the Danes to produce quality food. And you're invited to the historical gardens of Brede in Denmark. In short, this episode is packed with history and gems about urban farming, both from a Danish and a European perspective. Because if you think that urban farming is a new and hip term, think again. Urban farming has roots in European history and it goes far back. But first, let's ask Dr. Paul Kledale why he chose to write the book. Yes, why did I engage in such a big project? <laughs> uh, well, I, th- I think in the beginning I was very interested in, in urban farming uh, back from the uh, food crisis in 2008 and 9, And I, I was yeah, intrigued by this uh, involvement in urban farming around the world, actually. But then I started to realize that urban farming was not something very new. And uh, I could see when I started digging into the history of my own country that I could actually go... 500 years back and see that urban farming has been uh, part of Denmark and Danish history. And, and then I started, when I worked more and more on that, I could see how that, that was very much in, uh, involved in, in big transformations in Europe with the uh, Enlightenment period and the Protestant Reformation and how that has influenced uh, refugees coming to Denmark and making new urban farm communities, etc. So it's actually much more than just urban farming. Yes, it's just more than just a box on a roof that you see somewhere in the new places taking place in these days, but it has deep history. I had been working a couple of years with a new production form called aquaponics, which is aquaculture and horticulture merged together. So you grow fish and plants and the manure from the fish is used to fertilize the plants. And so they clean the water and the water can be recycled back to the fish clean. So you use a much less water than in normal uh, fish production, etc. 
And then I started to realize that this was actually a f production form that you could act grow in urban farm or in the cities and you could supply food uh, very close up to, to where people were living. And, and now very soon, three quarters of the world population will be living in, in cities. People and it could help provide uh, climate resistance uh, cities. You use less fossil energy for transportation, packaging, etc. Working with aquaponics, among other things, made Paul Killedale interested in the history of urban farming, and he started digging. Let's go back in time and look at history and at the European perspective on urban farming. Well, we can start with the Protestant Reformation in, in back in 1536, uh, where you had this revolt uh, starting in Northern Europe against the Catholic doctrine and how the liturgy was uh, the, and the services of the church was, was being performed. You took away the land from the, the Catholic church, the bishops, and that they owned 40% of the land in Denmark. Most of the land went to the king, of course, but, but a lot of the land went also to the boroughs and became a part of uh, the payment for the city councillors and the administration, people working there, and who was like the extended hand of the king and, and making sure the rule of law was taking place, etc. Uh, or they would also rent out this land to wealthy merchants and, and make an income to the borough from that. So this is where we actually formally see that urban farming is, is kind of recognized and has uh, legal rights and has property rights towards uh, this land uh, for having farming connected to a city. What was a garden actually during the Reformation? Was there any gardens at all? Yes, there were uh, different sizes of gardens and, and most of them were outside the city ramparts, the city walls. Uh, it wasn't called gardens at that time, it was, it was a courtyard. And courtyard uh, meant that it was uh, fenced in uh, different vegetables. Uh, you had a courtyard for onions and cabbages, potatoes, uh, different uh, herbs, etc. And it's first up until the 16th century that you changed the name to garden. Before a garden was a uh, fenced area uh, pasture, a pasture area close to a, a small forest or a grove where you had lambs or cows uh, or small horses uh, uh, grazing there. So that was a garden in the old time. So when you read the literature, you have to be aware that uh, it, it's not a garden in the old-fashioned, uh, the, old, the new way of, of understanding a garden. Geographically, we'll now move to the island of Amar, located just outside of Copenhagen. Like many other places in the world, immigrants traveled and found new land and new ways to grow land and produce food. This also happened on the island of Amar, where Dutch immigrants settled. Well, this growing interstate trade and global trade uh, in the 16th century and, and the increasing wealth that came in the wake of that was, was, of course, interesting for the King Christian II, 
of Denmark, and he wanted to strengthen the commerce and, and also uh, uh, strengthen the Danish capital of Copenhagen, making it a commercial seaport, and, and so take advantage of this growing, growing trade and growing income. And uh, the mother to his lover, <laughs> Siegfried Williams, uh, who descended from wealthy Belgian uh, traders, uh, that provided the connections to the lower countries, which is today the Netherlands. Uh, and they had, of course, some of the biggest commercial ports in Europe at the time, Antwerp in Belgium today, and Amsterdam in, in what we call Holland today. Um, so the link was made there. And so in 1515, he went down to negotiate if he could actually have some uh, dairy farmers and horticulturalists to come and settle in Denmark. And so, uh, uh, upgrade the Danish agriculture and as well as also have products to trade with. And so he invited them up there and in 1520, uh, 184 people, uh, which was connected to 24 families, came up here and they were allowed to settle on the island of Amma, which is just outside Copenhagen. And they start their production of different dairy products, cheese, etc. And also uh, high level high-quality uh, vegetables. Mm -hmm. And they had to deliver that to the king, of course, first of it, some of it, and then uh, could sell on later on Amma Square in Copenhagen. And the story goes there that the, the product was such high quality and that the Dutch women, they had a special hat and it became a brand and a symbol of these high quality products that they were selling. So uh, the Danish farm women started to wear a similar hat when they were going to market to sell their products, to show this brand and design that we were also selling quality products. So they had an influence, but they, they kept their autonomy for more than 300 years in, uh, on, on the island of Amman. Yeah. And do you think the Dutch farmers taught the Danish uh, farmers something about agriculture and preparing food? Definitely, yeah. They really raised the quality of, 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 of uh, uh, the level of what is a quality product. And, and they were very efficiently uh, farmers. They were using the manure from the cows to use that on the vegetable farms. And so they became much more efficient than, than normally the, the Danish farmers at the time were producing, producing uh, vegetable products, etc. So are you actually saying that we owe the high Danish quality standard uh, to the Dutch? We owe that to the Dutch and they're still very high quality level today also. My great grandfather, he was a, when he was young, he's a, he was a horticulturalist and he was a trainee at a Dutch farmer in his young age there. So he should have been getting the best training you could get at the time. As you can hear, Dutch farmers have had an important part to play influencing the way Danish food is produced. But they were not the only ones inspiring the Danish way of growing crops and producing food. In the 16th and 17th century, several groups of people had to flee because they were Protestants. Among them were two pursued groups of people. Both the French Huguenots and the Moravian church brothers were part of the Protestant Reformation, they were Protestant, and they were heavily persecuted by the Catholic Church 
uh, in the 16th and 17th century. And so they became uh, refugees uh, in different places in Europe and, and to North America and, uh, and some of them even to South Africa. And, and some of them went to Holland because that was a Protestant area where they could find sanctuary. And then uh, some of them were offered to travel with the Dutch East Indian Company and uh, to settle down in the Dutch colony, the Cape in South Africa. So when you drink South African wine today, it's actually the French Huguenot who took wines with them when they were running away from France and then took it all the way to South Africa. And that's why they can find South African wine today. But actually some of these French uh, Huguenots were also invited by the, the, the Danish king Frederick IV to come to Denmark because they were excellent tobacco growers. And at that time you had this uh, philosophy of mercantilism. So you should produce as many products you could yourself because if, if you had to purchase it out, it would mean you were using your own silver or gold money. So if you could keep that at home, that would be best. So you should try and produce as much as possible at home. So here was the idea that you should start producing tobacco uh, at home in Denmark. So these refugees, there were, some of them are now here in Germany, they were invited to move to Denmark and settle at the free town of Fredericia. A part of the group said yes to that. And so they moved and, and started tobacco production uh, outside the city ramparts of, of Fredericia. And they were getting tax exemption for producing and selling tobacco for 20 years. They were also getting uh, some funding for building houses uh, in the Fredericia. And how did that end? Are they still producing tobacco in Denmark? Well, it, it grew uh, more and more. So a uh, hundred years later, uh, Fredericia was the sole producer of tobacco in Denmark, uh, 125 tons per year. And then it slowly declined. And, and then uh, after the Second World War, it was the American tobacco that uh, took over the market. The Marlboro Man rode through. <laughs> That was the Huguenots. What about the Moravian church brothers? They were also very skilled artisans in carpentry, shoemaking, boilermakers, bakery, etc. And they were, 50 years later, they were invited also to come to Denmark. And that was the King Christian VII who invited them. And he was asking if they would like to settle in southern Jutland. Uh, and initiate sort of industrial development in the area, which was a little backwards at the time. Uh, and so they got a piece of land and they established the town of Christiansfeld, which means the field of Christian. So that was in gratitude to him of, of providing them the land there. And so they were building a, a town there and they had a 17 hectare that were provided for that. And they also received tax exemptions and support for building the houses, uh, etc. And the urban plan of, of, of Christiansfeld is, is very tight, it's very uh, rational, and you can really see the Protestant ethics in, in the town set up there. Uh, it has two parallel streets going east-west, and then uh, you have a plaza in the middle where there's the church, and that's shaped or formed like a crucifix. And then along the two parallel streets there, you have the individual houses there, and they have, in their connection, there were gardens. So there was a, like a north-south uh, 
divide and so in that way you could maximize light uh, for the gardening uh, production there. So in many ways, Christianfeld is, is really the first garden city you see being built in, in Europe. It's a church that's still functioning today and it's visited by many tourists and they want to taste the famous honey cake of Christiansfeld. And it's one of the best preserved of all 27 Moravian cities or, or areas in, in the world. And in 2015, it was part of UNESCO's uh, World Heritage List. So it's, it's definitely worth a pay a visit to that area. In some ways, the town resembles some of the Amish uh, sects uh, that you find in the United States. And it's sort of the same period when they came here to Denmark. Utopia is a book written by Thomas More in 1516. Dr. Paul Rue Kledal explains the significance of the book and how it is connected to urban farming. It's, it's a landmark. It's, it's a change in Western literature on visions and, and how to create an ideal society. Uh, and, and Thomas More, he's, he's very uh, impressed by the stories that are coming from the, uh, the, the uh, explorers coming from the New World, Americas. And they're telling about how they have seen these uh, hunter-agriculture societies uh, communities with abundance of food and where people are naked and they only work six hours per day and men and women are equal in their work and uh, they're happy and innocent like children at least that's what the tales uh, are telling uh, but all these tales are resembling the stories from the from the old testament about paradise however in western literature and in understanding at the time paradise is something we cannot reach until we we're, we're dead because we have sinned so you know we we're thrown out of paradise but but if we relive a, a, a righteous christian life uh, you you we might return to paradise but suddenly you know there are these stories about a real paradise somewhere out there in the new world uh, and that changes completely uh, people's understanding of maybe it is something we can actually achieve in our life. Uh, maybe it's something we can strive for and, and, and build. So, so that is a completely, you know, change in our perceptions of, of uh, life is perhaps not so God-given and we have to accept things, but we can actually change it. And, uh, and of course, it becomes also a very strong foundation of, of uh, later the... United States of America, because this is a lot of these refugees, uh, religious refugees from Europe, persecuted by the, uh, the Catholics and from the Protestant Reformation. So they are migrating to the United States and trying to settle up these new ideal societies or religious utopias, etc., to the land of the free and the home of the brave. And what is the connection between urban farming and utopia? Well, they, they are establishing these uh, sort of uh, small agrarian, small industrial uh, societies, where uh, so urban farming uh, within these small uh, villages that they're setting up is an important part of that. And, and it, it continues also later when the Enlightenment period and the, the first uh, utopian socialists, as, as Karl Marx uh, a little scornful calls them, 
uh, about making an, another form of ideal society where you're free of, of the, the slavery of capitalism. Um, so they also have ideas of how to build a, a, a new society, an ideal society. So, and they are using a lot of ideas from the book of Thomas More. Uh, with a, a lower work aid, uh, work hours per day, uh, men and women are equal, etc. So, uh, urban farming utopia, it all connects. It all connects, yes. In connection with utopia, you've also talked about the utopian socialists. What are they? Well, the, the expression is something that's a little scornfully used by Karl Marx because he was sort of criticizing the way they thought they could change the society because they thought they could do it by, you know, a rational debate. And if people were enlightened, you could talk and you could change people, etc. So they were very much uh, inspired also from the Enlightenment period, which, which really believed heavily in, in in this way of, of making progress, you know, if people are knowledgeable and, and learning things, you could have a debate and discussion on a rational level, and so things could change for the better. And you could you could divide them in two groups. I mean, where, where one of these utopian socialists, they believed that a better and harmonious society, that, that was if you created small agrarian, uh, small industrial communities with a certain amount of people uh, staying there. It shouldn't be two big cities because then you will have all kinds of problems. So it should be smaller communities that was built up and built around uh, this kind of uh, small factory handcraft made things. And then you had the others that was more sort of, no, you need the industrial mode of production that could provide the wealth to uh, take away poverty and erase people's wealth, etc. One of them, Robert Owen, uh, a wealthy entrepreneur uh, from his cotton mill in New Lanark in Scotland, uh, he's part of this group and very famous because he transformed his mill uh, into a model company town. There were like over 2,000 people working there. And he started reducing the hours of working, you know, again inspired from late from Thomas More's Utopia and having certain health care and he introduced insurance systems where people were paying part of that. And he also introduced that he supplied food for them, but at low prices. And, and Robin Owen is also actually the father of the co-op movement of purchasing in a big scale and then sell as, as low as price as possible to the consumers. And they should be part of that themselves there. And he was very strict also, no drinking and also child labor. He, he said only a couple of hours, then the children should go to school, etc. So it was a, a, a fantastic model town. And, and then he had the thousands of visits every year. The emperor of Russia came there to see this. And so a lot of people came to, to see that and had a huge influence later on on how to design uh, urban cities and, and in, in, form, in, in, in relation to industrial areas. And in many of these company towns, you also had gardens, so, so the workers could supplement their income with, the, with their own food they were making. So, of course, it was also to keep the wages low, but then they could actually subsidize it by having their own gardens that was provided there. And we have one of these company towns also in, in, in Denmark here, at, outside Copenhagen, at called Brede. And speaking about Brede, 
Let's go there. Let's go there, yes. <laughs> I'm standing on a little slope looking towards some houses with the thatched roofs. I'm in the area of Brille in Denmark and uh, I don't think this is something that other than Danes can say. Well, the soft D, yes, of course, yes. But this is the factory town of Brede, or the mill at Brede. And uh, it's part of nine other mills along the mill stream. And it's actually a cradle for industrialism in Denmark, uh, where we have these first mills being built uh, back in the Middle Ages. And this mill at Brede, it started out uh, making copper plates for pots and pans and also for the roofs uh, in Copenhagen on the churches and the castle, etc. But then later it became to making clothes and is very well known as the clothing factory at Brede. And technically these mills had to be placed where the energy was. And in this case it's the water stream uh, that was driving a mill and that the mill could again drive some hammers which could make the metal plates, etc. Uh, so this was at that time very far out of Copenhagen so you also had to to make sure that you could have workers coming here and work at the factory they had to uh, support with some facilities in this case they were making houses uh, and we are standing here in front of the row houses for some of the workers uh, houses the wages were a little lower than in you could see in the city but then they had these free housing and they would also allowed to have a garden. This, we are standing here in the kitchen garden. So there were typically 400 square meters where they could supply with their food uh, as part of the income. And they were also having geese or some rabbits or chickens, etc. So we're standing in the historic gardens here uh, by the old mill stream. And do you think they look very different today than they did way back when? No, I think it's the same here, like in the 17th and 18th century. So these are the, the allotments for the different housing, row houses down there, terrace houses. So they are not flat gardens, they're actually sloping a little yeah, bit. Yeah, they're actually sloping, yeah, and or, or kind of a terraces, uh, because we're standing on a hill. Uh, vegetables and flowers, greenhouses, little sheds for keeping your garden utensils. What else? Lots of greenery this June, late June day, summer day in Denmark. Sun is shining, it's warm. And we can hear kids in the background. There's a kindergarten right yes. next to this. And that was also connected to the factory originally. And, and, and at that time it was called an asylum to have a place for keeping children or while the parents were working. And actually now there's a little train line uh, crossing through this beautiful landscape. And it's a beautiful train ride through uh, the woods and forests in Copenhagen, and which were used for making coal in the old days. So they came into the uh, plaza of coal right in, in Copenhagen, where they had burnt the wood to make coal so you could uh, make food and keep your heat in, in the buildings in Copenhagen. But that was what the forest in the northern of Copenhagen were used for. Yeah. They actually transported the coal from out here right all the way into Copenhagen? Yes, but not by train at that time, but uh, with the cows, cattle, uh, horse wagons, yeah. 
And there are stories about how when the farmers have gotten money for selling the coal that they were, you know, drinking a lot uh, when they were on the way back home, you know. There's some writings about some priests, you know, telling how horrible, how the city is, is destroying the, uh, the uh, ethics of the farmers. So if uh, listeners come to Brede, you would uh, advise them to go and see these beautiful little gardens? Yes, as part of that, but also the factory is, is, is an industrial museum today and showing the, the yeah as the cradle of in, industry starting here in Denmark along the mill here. And the nature along the mill is beautiful, you know. And the water is coming from some huge big lakes further inland in, in, in sea land. So it's so very beautiful. You can rent canoes or you can take boat rides along the mill stream and on these lakes there. So it's definitely worth visiting. Thank you for taking us. You're very welcome. After having visited the picturesque and unique area of Brede in Denmark, we now go back to the interview and the historic part of 500 years of urban farming in Denmark. There were three types of gardens that were significant from the 18th to the 20th century. Poverty gardens are related to land that's provided to poor people. And it's first, first registered in England in 1793, where farmers starting to lack labor. And that's because a lot of people, of poor people in England, are leaving for the 13 British colonies in the present-day United States of America. Uh, so, they were, so they were lacking labor suddenly. So that's why they started saying, okay, getting together and providing land to very poor rural people and, and persuade them to stay and, and work for them. But later on, it also took uh, an impact when, you, when we start to seeing land reforms, uh, both in England and also other places in Europe, uh, where you abolished uh, the uh, feudal system And you took in the land of the commons, where poor people had access to their uh, few animals to graze, etc. But that was suddenly becoming privatized. So poverty started to increase dramatically in uh, many places in Europe and also in England there. And that's where some of these uh, enlightened landlords uh, um, started to provide poverty gardens also. And what was the characteristics physically, of a poverty garden, if any? Uh, they could get it for a very small sum of money, and it was like uh, 200 square meters, so they could produce their stable food uh, on this piece of land. Uh, typically potatoes, which gives energy, and then cabbage, so you had at least C vitamins in the wintertime. So, so they were the classical products that they were producing there. And that we see uh, also expanding here in Denmark, and uh, even with a, uh, uh, the king making orders to the boroughs that they have to provide uh, poverty gardens uh, to the poor people there. And we have one still left. Most of them have been, been uh, disappeared because the cities expanded. But there was one town in southern Jutland where they were very hesitant to provide a poverty garden. Uh, so they put it very far out when they did it. And so it has survived today and is part of the allotment garden movement today. What can you tell us about the allotment gardens? 
The Enlightenment government movement is very closely related to the industrialization, uh, where you have workers coming in from the rural areas and taking jobs in the cities and very, very low pay, etc. And you, you see a similar transformation in many developing countries where you have, you ha even, even though you have a very low pay or possibility of a low pay, it's, it's better than the hardship you have in the rural areas. But uh, not all of these poor people migrating in is, is getting a job or the job is, is very, very low, low pay. So they were subsidizing this with uh, small pieces of land. But there starts to get this movement of, of setting up formally these allotment gardens uh, where you where you are in, in self-control of it and, and small community gardens like this. And the labor movement is, is very much involved in this and promoting that for its, its uh, members. And what about the characteristics of the allotment gardens? Any significant characteristics you can tell us about? They were actually the same size, uh, you know, like what we saw in the poverty gardens a uh, hundred years before that. And, and, and in the beginning, they were very sort of freestyle, wonderful buildings. And, but then later on, it becomes a little more sort of petty bourgeois, organized and, and, uh, and lots of rules and regulations to have them, etc. You're not allowed, supposed to sleep there, so because that was also a problem. People had no places to when they were migrating into the cities, they would start sleeping in these sheds in, in the gardens there. So, so there are also these kind of rules. You cannot stay overnight there, etc. And it's they have a challenge today. A lot of these allotment gardens because the young people are not really interested in these formal rules and regulations etc so, so they have a challenge now how how do you get a new generation to be interested in these allotment gardens and some of the prospects i point to in the book is they should perhaps also open more up because they're typically closed in with you know hedges and fences you know so it's just a green island in some space in the city that they should try and open up and include uh, the local environment uh, and the local communities there and and have different kinds of events that might uh, you know, open, open up for a younger generation to, to be involved in the allotment movement. And, and I think they can have, if they open up, you know, they can show also they have a very uh, important task here in, in the cities where, where it's always a fight to, to, to keep a green space, you know, because a green space is somewhere where you can put a building and generate much more money than some people just having a leisure time in a garden there. So again, the same thing of agriculture moving out of the cities because somebody else can can pay more for this piece of land. So it has to be protected. And, and it is also protected in, in, in Denmark. And I, I think also seven, eight other countries in, in Europe are protecting the allotment garden. So if you take away an allotment garden, you have to uh, provide the same land somewhere else for them. But of course, you know, it's, it's still a challenge if it's leaving the city and being thrown outside the city. So, so they have an important task of, of keeping green islands in a city of concrete. Then we have the final type, the garden cities. What are those? 
The Garden City movement is, is uh, coming there by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. You see this rapid population, I was mentioning the, the immigration from the rural areas coming into the cities where the industrial revolution is taking place, there's job opportunities. Uh, but they are coming into cities that are overcrowded, uh, people are competing for space, jobs, etc. And, and you have poverty, you have unemployment, you have homeless children, you have prostitution, you have crime, you have all these things that are typically from, which you also see in many developing countries today. Um, and at the same time, you didn't have any sewage system. So, you know, the, you had human droppings, you had animal manure in the street, as I was saying, we even had cows in, in Copenhagen up to the 1920s. Uh, so it, it was a horrible nuisance and, and, and uh, and a conscious problem to also this rising urban middle class that were coming up in the cities. You know, you couldn't take a nice shoes on because you might step in, in some wonderful shit somewhere else, you know. And the smell. And at that time they had this uh, belief that the smell, the bad smells were giving diseases, you know. So there was a, a, a big movement among the uh, urban middle class, you know, to, you know, if you're clean and, and keep a nice family, you know, you can keep away these problems, etc. They were on the track, but uh, uh, later on they discovered the cholera bacteria, etc. But, but in reaction to this, uh, there was this English uh, uh, writer, Ebenezer Howard, who launched his vision of garden cities. And there were kind of ideal towns contained by rolling green belts around them and, and separated industry from uh, housing areas. So you were trying to combine the best of the countryside, the English countryside, uh, and, and the, the best of this city and how it draws and leisure possibilities, etc. So um, he offered these visions of town free of slums and how it should be organized in, in a different way, networks, etc., between these different garden cities. So it was kind of a very radical new model of, of design and layout of housing, which was not very planned at that time. It was just who would invest in a, in a building for these uh, uh, numbers of immigrants coming in, and then it would just set it up, etc. But now there was like, you should, this should be planned. And so you could have clean air in, in areas where you live, and you could have industry in another area, etc., where you work, and then you leave that. But it became a model later on uh, uh, also for the suburban development, you know, that you're outside of the city with the green and the fresh air and all that. And can you give us some examples of uh, garden cities in Denmark? We have several, and, and there's one I think is much more closer to its ideal and also these, at least some of these socialist visions that were in there, we, that's called the Bonshoi, and that's a town uh, in Copenhagen today, uh, where you had this sort of winding village road and and uh, you had a plaza where people could meet. You had uh, 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 bathing rooms because nobody had showers in the houses at that time in the 1920s. So here there was a common uh, place where you could wash yourself, washing rooms. And uh, you had also kindergarten during the day. And in the nighttime, it was a library. So again, you had this from the Enlightenment period and the utopian socialist. People should be educated, have knowledge, etc.
This podcast is the first of two episodes, and in the next episode, we're going to look at the future prospects. What can you tell us about the contents of the next episode? Well, there we will look at the future prospects of urban farming. What can urban farming uh, contribute to city development uh, in the future here? And especially how can you incorporate the new exciting urban farm designs that are taking place around the world uh, into the municipal planning and especially support not only more sociable communities but, but also bolster against climate change, which I think is going to be a very important part. And urban farming has a lot to contribute in that respect. And I guess it's also a matter of uh, architecture. How, how should f future architecture incorporate the urban farming idea and the space for people to thrive and grow? Yes. And uh, I have also made a manifesto. And I think one of the things in the manifesto is that uh, Every time you, you take land for a concrete space, uh, you should replace it by a green space. So if you take something, you should replace it. So that can be either you, you make uh, green rooftops or you put greens on the side. So in that way you can expand uh, four times more with greenery than you actually covering with your uh, concrete. Etc. So I think this is one example of laws that you should implement in city development and to make builders and investors to think about incorporate urban farming. And that can be also, you know, just green context in, in, in a building or in, the, or in the green area. Because you are in this problem of competing of space and different interests of how this space should be, should be used in the city. The future is green. The future is green, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you too. You've listened to the first part of the podcast 500 Years of Urban Farming in Denmark, Past Experiences and Future Prospects, based upon the book bearing the same title and written by Dr. Paul Rykledel. If you would like to read more, or maybe buy the book, please visit paulrykledal.dk. Interviewer and producer of this podcast is Annette Hallstrøm from Helcom. <laughs>